Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Robert Duncan, who's written a novel called Loudmouth. It's a great read, a lot of fun. Welcome, Robert. Hey, Stephen. Nice to be here. As I said, this book is a little different in that it is a novel. It is your story, but it's told through a character. Is that a fair take? Yeah, that is a fair take, and I can tell you why, if uh, if anybody's interested. Oh, I'm sure they are. You know, I've been working in, in the music business and the creative business for my whole life. By the nature of that, there's a lot of memory loss. And, you know, I, I, I'm about flow, and I didn't want to have to be, I didn't want to have to be looking over my shoulder at the facts. I thought, well, I'm going to tell it as I remember it. And in order to just completely liberate myself, I decided, okay, I'm going to change the names of people. I'm going to call this a novel. So I won't have to worry about anybody going, well, that wasn't exactly how it went. Mm. Yeah, there's a, a couple of great quotes on your website about the book. One of them is your solemn guarantee. And it is, quote, some of it is factual. All of it is true. I love that. And that's that's the truth, because that's that's where a novel can be more accurate to the the mood the atmosphere the you know if i describe somebody to you it just it really helps to put a little bit of spin on that description instead of having to you know again be beholden entirely to the facts plus be being beholden to the facts means you got to go do research i'd have to go do research on my own life i don't want to do research i want to write well, right, you did. Again, on your website, the book is called, quote, a rock and roll coming of age novel about sex, drugs, attempted murder, successful arson, love, hate, faith, fraud, family, Springsteen, The Clash, The Stones, Cream Magazine, Lester Bangs, The 70s, New York, Detroit, Memphis, and Buck Teeth. Did I miss anything? No, there was a lot more in there. But I remember all the all the editors of publishing houses were like, well, you know, how would you summarize this thing in, in a few words? You know, they all want, you know, almost famous meets Sergeant Peppers. And I struggled to come up with anything. And I thought, well, really, that's because it's about a million things. And it's about chaos. And it's about randomness of life. And that's how that kind of random-ish list came about. But it's all in the book. Yeah, and it's it's a fascinating story. And we'll talk about your musical life. But I remember when I was, you know, reaching out to you at first and I asked because, you know, we generally don't do fiction. And you said this isn't fiction. And you, you actually put it uh, a little bit akin to On the Road, which I thought was, was very much a good analogy trying to explain it to somebody. It's definitely a coming of age story based in music and all the, you know, shit that young men and teenagers and musicians and writers go through. 
Yeah, you know, I, uh, people people all said to me, people, acquisition editors, the people you got to sell it to, they would say to me, why don't you just make this a memoir? I said, well, it's not really a memoir. And I said, and who cares? I mean, did, did people complain when Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road and he had, you know, Gary Snyder was, what was he, J.C. Ryder, you know, and Allen Ginsberg was this and, and, and Burroughs was this and that. And I thought that didn't seem to bother anybody. And I think that it, it bothers the acquisition editors. I mean, it's all about the marketing. They think, well, people will be more interested in something that's a true story or factual, <laughs> a factual story. Ultimately, I guess you're making their job harder. So, <laughs> um... And making their job harder. And, and, uh, and really, I don't think readers give a shit. Certainly a new generation is not going to be the new generation those of them who read books, which is not a lot, not a lot. Uh, are not going to be, you know, wow, this is a, this is a novel. So like, they're not going to, it's not going to confuse them or, or worry them. Well, however you want to define it, it, it is a crazy story, no matter whose eyes it's told through. And Tom is the central character and it is pretty much a life story. And it's, is it fair to say that Tom did not have an easy childhood that formed him? I, I always thought that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He came from, as I did, he came from a Southern family that was really stuck in the past. And, I, and I'm talking about the, uh, you know, the late, uh, the 1860s. So that, you know, the South shall rise again kind of attitude. And this was, you know, the 60s. And it was the Martin Luther King and, and, and uh, the, the counterculture and all that stuff. And it was just their extreme conservatism ran quite counter to what the, you know, their, their kid was experiencing. And that was me and or Tom, you know, so you had to kind of make your choice. And, uh, and I made my choice as Tom made his choice and became, you know, a rock and roll singer. Well, that led to a different life. And, and you know, and, and there was violence, you know, there was uh, physical violence and, and all sorts of stuff in his childhood. Yeah, it wasn't fun. And you were shipped off to boarding school, which, you know, I don't think it's, it didn't sound like that was first choice. But uh, amazingly, it provided se several friends. And I'll use that word in air quotes, but they continually resurfaced throughout your story. So, you know, I imagine those people you met there left an impression. Yeah, there, there were a few people that did. And mostly, you know, it, that was that was a tough, you know, to be sent away at 13. And I, I'm not saying it, I wasn't sent to prison at 13, but it, but it felt like prison. Yeah. And, and it was, again, a very hidebound and um, old school type place where there was no room for uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. But, yeah, I, I mean, there was a few people that I kept in touch with and ultimately went on to play in bands with. And yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you're all kind of stuck away, away from the 1960s, it was just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> You know, but that was to keep me out of trouble and only ensured that I got into much worse. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about sex, drugs, and rock and roll because that is the story uh, that that is told largely, uh, as well as is a life story. Music has always played a meaningful role in first-time physical encounters. Tom found Otis Redding through a certain musical guide who was also, you can tell that story. Yeah, well, so this was a summer, I guess, out of school, and I was living in New York City. And we were just, you know, we were city rats, me and my little crew of two or three buddies. We just explored all the 
angles. And we were going to bars at the age of 14. You know, we weren't just drinking. We were going to bars and knew the bartenders and all that stuff. So his name in real life was Tommy. He's in the book. But Tommy was, he had a big Irish Catholic family and a, kind of a brutal father. And he was the youngest. And the brothers were always telling him, oh, here's what you ought to do. And here's what you ought to do. And they, they told him how to, you know, when he, he started approaching puberty, they started telling him, well, here's how you get a girl and this and that. And, uh, and here's how you get a prostitute. Every time we would get drunk, and we got drunk a lot for 14-year-olds, but the drunkest one would always be Tommy, and he was always trying to insist we go find a prostitute down at Times Square. <laughs> and so one day, uh, one of the guys said, okay, we, but we're going to do it. And, and we all decided, we, and we would go find a prostitute. And, you know, we, I, I think I had 15 bucks. We met this woman on the street, and, and she was actually, there was a lot of them were all, you can see, all fucked up. But this woman was actually very nice, and she understood that we were little 14-year-old virgins. And and she was kind of, uh, you know, motherly to us, if that's not a sick thing to say. But so she took us back to her apartment, and, you know, she had all this, this record collection. And she she put uh, Otis Redding on the, on, the, on the record player. And and that was the music that was playing when I when I first had something that might loosely be termed sex. Yeah, well, I mean that was New York in the sixties, I, I guess. There's some unbelievable concerts at a very early age for you as well. August twenty third, nineteen sixty six. That's rock and roll's ground zero, isn't it? Well, it was. You know, the the Beatles were the godhead. They really were. I mean, if you if you lived through that era, that was that was it. And the idea of seeing the Beatles, as I did on that day at Shea Stadium in New York, it's still kind of mind-blowing. I think today when I tell young people about it, they, it just means, oh, that guy's really old. <laughs> we went to see the Beatles, and, and we didn't hear much of them. We heard all the, the screaming that you've heard about. But we got to see him and be in the same room, so to speak, with the, the guy, these guys we, we just worshipped. And uh, it was their second-to-last concert on that tour and until they did the rooftop at Abbey Road. Yeah, that, that's an amazing uh, story. And I'm sure a formative experience for somebody who's, you know, becomes enveloped in music and would go on and play in bands. Uh, you know, and another one I was amazed at, the Electric Circus as a 12-year-old. Yeah, the Electric Circus was, was actually non-alcohol. It was a juice bar, basically. And the bar downstairs, the Dom, uh, where the Velvet Underground hung out a lot. That was a real bar. But upstairs, the Electric Circus was a juice bar. You could get in at 12. And I had this wonderful friend who's fictionalized in the book. We went to see uh, Sly and the Family Stone at the Electric Circus. It was their first time playing New York. The Electric Circus was a really trippy place with all these kind of Mobius strips of uh, fabric all over the place that they projected onto. And, and Sly and the Family Stone in person, and you know, whatever this was, this was like 66, 67. They were an incredible band. Classic, classic records. And then we, you know, and then a, within the year, um, Bill Graham opened the Fillmore East, and we were down there all the time. You know, we saw everybody. You know. And then they had a thing up, up at uh, Woolman Rink. There was a skating rink up in uh, Central Park. And, and in the summers, they had concerts. And it was sponsored by Schaefer Beer, no longer with us, fortunately. So they'd only charge like a buck a ticket. And, you know, the Who would play. 
and Hendrix. Oh, man. It was a nice thing to be alive in that in that year. Yeah, and, and like many kids who are so into music, Tom slash you, um, finds his way into a band at a pretty young age. Yeah. Yeah, at, at 12 years old, the Beatles had hit. And I was aware of music because I had this much older kind of gangster brother who would play loud rock and roll in his hot rod when, when he was forced to take me somewhere. But anyways, yeah, we, we, you know, it was the Beatles that made us go, everybody go join bands. There was one band in our grade school, it was grade school, you know, but we played instrumental music. We couldn't really sing. We didn't have microphones. So we played venture songs, you know, so we played basically surf music. And then it became clear that as the uh, British invasion happened on the radio, that we would have to be, add singing to our repertoire. And I was the first one in the band whose voice changed. Mm. So, so then I became a singer. That was actually a much better spot for me because uh, I didn't have the patience to become a good guitar player. But, but I was wild enough to be a good lead singer. Well, there's some great stories about the kind of um, uh, metamorphosis of some of the bands you were in. And eventually you're in a band called Romper Room and some of the practice spots and, you know, just these disgusting stories. You know, we were practicing in one of those basements. And, and you know, most bands have done this. Uh, we were practicing in a basement that was for sure just covered in asbestos. And it was, it was a boiler room and it was really fucking hot. There, were, there was not a breath of air in it. Nothing ever happened. But we developed an act, and we played the, the biggest thing we ever did. We played the biggest nightclub in Rhode Island, which, which sounds like a joke. But it was like 600 people, and we, we got an agent, and so we were really rocking along. And we went up to the biggest, and this is fictionalized and loudmouth as well, but we went up to the biggest uh, nightclub in, in Rhode Island. And I, at this point, I was standing on the amplifiers and I'm jumping out into the crowd and laying down on the floor and pouring beer all over myself and I would do fake interviews with people in the crowd and I would steal people's drinks and I would go outside and I was just I was completely drunk and also completely into this kind of behavior and I thought this is the kind of thing I thought was cool and funny you know this is a couple of years before punk hit you know, it was like the 74 or something. And I remember one of my guitar players calling me up and saying, he said, you see what you started? <laughs> and it was true. We were doing like all this outrageous shit, antisocial shit. And it didn't, you know, it was, it was funny to me. But then, you know, at the end of the week-long gig at the largest nightclub in Rhode Island, the, the owner was like, said to the, our keyboard player, said, you guys are all right, but you've got to get rid of that singer. <laughs> Wow. So, uh, yeah. Well, and, and the band does come to an end, and you are offered a gig with a band with yeah. a pretty famous guitar player. Yeah, the band came to an end. And, and then, I don't know, a month or two, three afterwards, the, the bass player called me up and said, hey, I'm, I'm playing with a pickup band down at this club called the Cafe Bazaar, and, and we're going to have a special guest, he says. And, so, and we did a bunch of cover songs. And so we're playing and then this guy comes on stage and, and by now he's got short hair, but I still recognize him. He was really one of my favorite guitar players, which is Sam Andrew from Big Brother and the Holding Company. So he came on and played and we played for an hour or two. And the next day the drummer calls me up and says, hey, uh, Sam and I want to come see you. 
And I'm like, you know, we'll, we'll have lunch. And I'm, this, I'm a guy who's never had a business lunch at this point. And I'm 21 years old. And they came and Sam said, hey, you, you want to be singer in my new band? So I would have been the first singer after Janis Joplin because she had died just a few years before. But I had made plans to go to California and give up doing music and start. I thought, well, maybe I'll write about music. I wanted to do something that I could do on my own. And I didn't have to depend on flaky other folks uh, as lovable as they may have been. So that segues nicely. At your next uh, you know, point in your life, you move to Detroit. And you talk about being a writer. And uh, that culminates there. Yeah. Well, I moved to California. Then I moved back to New York. And then uh, a guy named John Morrison, who I'd met in California, calls me up and said that I, uh, we, we had gotten to be friends. And I had met him through this guy, Ed Ward who just passed away this yeah. week. And so he called me up and said, you want to come out to Detroit and be copy boy? And, and I'm like, you know, I'm sleeping on my friend's couch and not making any money. I, I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. You know? And it was January mm. and it was cold and it was dark. And John Morthland and Lester Banks in Lester's uh, red Camaro picked me up at the airport and we all went and got drunk. And then I, <laughs> I spent an amazing year and a half there at Kareem uh, that seemed to have crammed a lifetime of experiences. And eventually went from being copy boy to, to being managing editor. And, and how that had happened was basically Lester Banks, who was a, a wonderful guy and a great friend and also a giant pain in the ass, basically drive them away. And eventually the publisher came to me and said, hey, how would you like to be editor? And uh, that's how that happened. And it worked, it worked great. Well, that's so interesting, too, because, you know, there's so many questions I would have about Cream Magazine as a fan. But, you, you know, you do become editor and then you're editing Lester. Yeah. And, you know, that must have been a really tough job, particularly, you know, his stream of consciousness style. Well, he was so good at that stream of consciousness shit. Or the first major piece I ever uh, edited, I believe it was John Denver is God. Not really, you know, he, he wasn't really a John Denver fan, but he. I forget what, what his premise was, but he was so good at the stream of consciousness stuff. This is a guy who could write for like, you know, 24 hours and half of it would be really good. And the stuff that wasn't good was so not good that it was kind of easy to edit them. It was like, oh, good, 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 good. Oh, this sucks. And they were kind of like, you know, it would be one section that would suck. And I remember chopping that up and we used that as a cover story but so it, it was weird that he was easy to edit because he was so either radically good or radically bad. And it was easy to see what was the bad. And the bad wasn't, the bad was like, just kind of like, wow, you know, that's just, that's just alphabet on the page. You can't even fathom it. You know? Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Robert Duncan, who's written a fascinating book about his life in the music industry and beyond called Loudmouth. And right now we're talking about Cream Magazine. And I have to say that I was obsessed with Cream Magazine. I grew up in Miami in the 70s, which was an outpost as well. And, you know, I can just remember biking to the 7-Eleven to pick up a new copy and coming home and spending the whole day reading it. And, you know, some of the people there, we mentioned Lester, but there was also, you know, Dave Marsh or Jan Uhelsky, Jan Uhelsky, yeah, and Lisa Robinson. And there were so many people. Why yeah. do you think Cream was so special? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say it was another, Miami was another outpost. And I think that was part of Cream's appeal was that it was kind of the magazine for the rest of us, in a sense. That was part of it. Because it wasn't you know, in its in its wildness and its loudness and its uh, disrespect of rock stars, you know, it wasn't. You had to like like lots of curse words and stories of bad behavior. You know, I think it was a confluence of writers, whether they were on staff, uh, whether they were freelance, and really barely controlled chaos of. So nobody came down on them. They could come there and do their best, most visionary work, if I can use that word, about some of the stuff that was written. And they knew they had to be funny as hell. And because this humor, I mean, the humor was obviously huge for Lester. He was very funny. It was huge for me, remains so. But when I get comments about Loudmouth said, I laughed every other page. I think that's exactly what I want you to do. So I, I think there was no restriction. It isn't a formula. It was like, it wasn't, you know, the way some bands like the Beatles or something, you know, McCartney and Lennon just worked together. So I think it was the stars aligned and it happened. And you couldn't take any formula from that and say, oh, okay, so we'll be really controlled chaos and we'll be young writers and just emerging writers and and you couldn't make a, a new magazine that would work out of that. Right. You know? And the publisher was crazy and the editors were crazy. And, and uh, all of that culture really comes through. And I think part of that for us in the outpost was that 
you know, we felt you got it. Not everybody did, you know, so it was kind of a secret club. And I, I just, you know, also the humor, you mentioned that, and, you know, there was the, you know, backstage section, which always had hilarious uh, things under the pictures and the cream dreams with some of the women stars, and even the men stars in the news. I can remember so much about that magazine. And, and I think that, uh, you know, everything you mentioned really came out in the writers and the, you know, what they were trying to do was definitely off center, I'd say. Yeah, and there was attention to that detail, you know, those, those captions. It's why shouldn't the captions be funny and interesting? And the table of contents, you could laugh two or three times reading the table of contents, which most often was written by Lester Banks, and the dude was funny. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back through that book, the, the Cream book. Um, you mentioned... Uh, you know, rock stars. And, and there was part of the appeal at Cream Magazine, I'll assume, was getting to meet some of those. And you have some interesting stories about that. And most of them were aware of Cream Magazine, weren't they? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it was particularly in, well, Detroit had a scene and Cream was part of that scene. And also part of that scene was obviously Iggy Pop and the MC5 and Alice Cooper, who came originally from Arizona, but broke through in, in Detroit. Bob Seger's system, his great original band. So there was a real Detroit music scene, and Cream was part of it. And so, obviously, they all knew Cream. But that, that, that influence, um, you know, resonated out into the Midwest. And I always found that there was a particular audience in the Midwest uh, for Cream and its the bands, uh, you know, so bands like REO Speedwagon, they were giant in the Midwest and Cream would cover them. You know, Rolling Stone wouldn't cover them uh, or not the same way. Well, you can tell us about riding on Keith and Ronnie Wood's private plane. That's a hell of a story. Oh, that was funny. When you say private plane, <laughs> imagine, you know, it's a little, it's a little, it's a Gulf Stream, you know, eight seats or something. I was supposed to interview Ronnie Wood, he and Keith had a side project called the New Barbarians while the Stones were on some hiatus. And so I got assigned by Cream to go do a story on it. I remember, so I went to a hotel in, in New York. I was in the limo with Stanley Clark. It was quite fun. We were driving up, uh, over the river to New Jersey where the executive airport is where all the rich guys park their private planes. And we drive out onto the tarmac right next to this plane. The plane was not a little Gulfstream. It was a, like a 727. It was a, a big a commercial jetliner. Get out of the limo, you go up the stairs. It was just such a, such a scene. And when you get in the plane, the front of the plane was like a British pub. And it you know, had kind of you know, tartan rugs and, and leather chairs. That, that, that was your seat, a swiveling leather uh, chair. And there was a bar, and behind that bar was the most impeccable British pub man uh, there to serve you drinks. It was such a, just a fantastic experience. It, in the cocoon of, of, you know, rock stardom, so you drive onto the tarmac, you get on the plane, you, you fly to the, uh, the venue, which is down in Baltimore, and you drive in the limos under the venue, you come up, you do your show. And as the applause still rings out, you all get in the limos. And, you know, again, we had like a dozen limos. Yeah. And, uh, and you go back to the plane and back to New York. And so we were, you know, went from Baltimore to New York and, and did a show in about, you know, 
four hours. It was some ridiculous uh, amount of time. So, yeah. And then we went back to the, the suite in the fancy hotel. So we're just hanging, me, um, Ron Wood, Ian McLoggan, who used to be in the Faces, here walks into the suite, um, Keith Richards with his bottle of Jack Daniels, and he sits down and we're all just shooting the shit and getting drunk. And anyway, we're having, well, having a good time. Ronnie Wood kept saying to me, right, we'll do the interview soon, mate. We're, we're, you know, we'll, we'll do it, I promise. And it, it gets around to three in the morning. I thought, well, I'll call my girlfriend who I told her I'd be home earlier and uh, to tell her I'm not going to be there. And, and, and I said, Ronnie, can I, can I use the, the phone? And in those days, we didn't have cell phones, as you might recall. Uh, and he took me in the white bedroom with the white shag rug and the white bedspread and the white phone on the white bedside table and, you know, gestured, you know, I could use it. So I pulled the phone close to me and I picked it up and I dialed. And then Ronnie came back in the room and said, oh, excuse me, excuse me. And he started there. I realized I had shoveled most of a, a mountain of white powder onto the white shag rug. And I'm sitting there with the phone in my ear and Woody is trying to, to sweep up the last few grams of white powder. Uh, and uh, how to feel like a douchebag with rock stars. But they were all so nice. Well, you had some really interesting encounters. And one opens your book with some stars even before they got famous, like Springsteen and, and Bullet Souvenirs or something. Is that Do I remember that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, was, that, that is more or less a true story. It's just that some of this stuff, you know, you... you who knew you had to remember all the crazy <laughs> stuff and, you know, maybe you wouldn't have drank so much. Yeah, with Springsteen, I, I have on my website, it's, it's, it's great. I found the while you were out note that I got when I was at Cream. I had, I had met Springsteen in, in Detroit and he was touring. This is, this is after Corner Run had come out. So he was just, he was taken off big time, but he just wasn't quite so insulated from the, the world. We, we met in Detroit and had a, had a good time after one of his shows. And, and then he wrote, called the office back when, you know, there were secretaries to take messages. And he said, you know, come to Cleveland. And he wouldn't tell the receptionist who it was at just the initials BS. You know, I asked the publisher, I said, hey, you pay for me to go to Cleveland? Not very far from Detroit. And, and so he did. And I did. And I went down and I called Bruce and I said, hey, this is the time when I can call. You can call Bruce, you know. <laughs> And I said, hey, I got a friend down there in Cleveland. He's a crazy guy. He'll show us the Cleveland nobody else will show you. And uh, so the, the guy in the book, I call him Charlie, but his real name was Peter Lochner. And the character's based on him. Again, it's not exactly. So Peter Lochner was one of the founders of Pear Ubu, the Avant rock band, and, and uh, Rocket from the Crips, another big Cleveland band. And so Peter was like all down for this, this adventure. So he shows up at the, the, uh, the hotel and picks up in his junker, just spewing, you know, pollution back in the good old days of pollution. So I'm sitting up front. None of us are wearing seatbelts. And Bruce is sitting with his arms hanging over the front seat. And Peter's going to give us a tour of Cleveland. Well, Peter is a crazy driver. And his idea of what people would like to see in Cleveland are like dive bars and oh here's a dive bar I got thrown out of here's a dive bar my band played and he goes on and we had a just a crazy afternoon of crazy driving and crazy touristing and and then he delivered us back to the hotel and he 
fumbled around in his glove compartment, all his shit falling out of the glove compartment. And he handed each of us a 45 bullet, one to me, one to Bruce, and, and he held one. And he said to us, this is how we'll, we'll remember. And I kept that bullet for a really long time. And I just thought, well, that's just a perfect metaphor for this story. And at the end of the book, I bookend the book with the, this is how we'll remember. And I just thought the whole thing of this bullet being about how we'll remember is, was such a wonderful free metaphor. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it is, it is. And, uh, it's such a, just a memorable story as well. And, um, so Speaking of dive bars, you moved back to New York, and there's a couple dive bars that you haunt there, and Lester Bangs follows you back to New York, right. uh, and you share a space. I had the cheapest apartment in New York City. It was like 150 bucks, which was cheap even then. And the guy, the old man next door died, and Lester had always said he wanted to come to New York, and I called him up. I said, dude, I, the second cheapest apartment in New York just came open mm. next door to me. You want to come? And that's when Lester made the decision to leave Detroit and come to New York. Yeah, and I was just going to say, for a lot of reasons, that that wasn't a good fit. You know, where he, he could do what he did in, in Detroit, in New York, not so much. And then, you know, sadly, the landlord calls you. Yeah, yeah, the landlord knocked on my door and said, oh, I think there's something wrong with Lester. We lived on the fifth floor. It was a walk-up. Lester kind of had a way of falling upstairs. I never heard him fall down, that I recall. But he would kind of fall upstairs. It was kind of a cartoonish thing. So you learn that that's the, that's it was Lester's you know audio signature. And I had heard him falling up the stairs. He and I by this point had kind of like I couldn't take it anymore. He was so he was spiraling down so hard. It was just it was like it was no fun. And, but so he was falling up the stairs, and and then you know within five or ten minutes. The landlord's knocking on my door and says, there's something wrong with Lester. And I go in and Lester, Lester was dead on his couch. It, you know, it was quite a traumatic scene. You know, cops showed up. We had to call the cops. And well, one of the cops left and the other one that was assigned to stay until the, um, until the coroner's department came was said, do you mind if I look around at these records? Because all around on the walls and on the floors and everywhere were records. And it turns out this guy, this cop was a music fan. And then, you know, after a while of browsing, he came to me and said, hey, uh, you mind, he held up a record and said, mind if I take this, uh, take this record? And it was like, I believe it was Albert Eiler. That's what I decided it was in the book. But it was something like that. It was some, it was a jazz album and it was, and it kind of a, you know, I'm on guard jazz album. And Lester was still there on the couch. We were waiting for the coroner's office. It hadn't been, maybe it had been a half hour. And it was just like, this guy is taking Lester's records. And that was just so strange. Well, the guy was so nice. And I remember thinking, this guy loves this record. Lester would be happy to give it to this cop who loved this record. And and because he loved Albert Eiler, uh, Lester did. And, and so I said he could have it, but it was, it was such a lesson in, you know, when you're dead, you're gone, you're dead. You can't protect your shit. You know, it's all gone. It's a nice, as you say, a fitting tribute to Lester as well. I'm sure that that's probably what he he would have done. And, uh, you know, your story rides out in, on a very uplifting note. You're still in New York. Uh, you meet a soulmate uh, who's a photographer. You move out west. Yeah. And you're still you're still out west. I still am out west 37 years. Yeah. I met Ronnie Hoffman, who was a photographer. And, 
I, I really, it was her birthday yesterday, so we we're out getting drunk and reminiscing. It really was from the beginning, I could tell that this was like a different relationship. And she, she had been involved in the music business and everything. As a photographer, she had a, her previous boyfriend to me was a famous rock critic. And so she, when she was 17, she was like backstage with Jimi Hendrix and shit like that, you know, amazing stuff. Yeah, beautiful photographs. I looked up a couple of them, and uh, pretty amazing stuff. And yeah. your book is an amazing document, and as I said, uh, a little bit different. Uh, I would tell everybody if you're looking for a great read, that you know, you're right. You laugh at parts, you cry at parts, and it's it's just very unique. And so I commend you for that, and I thank you for oh. for joining us. And you know, I'm just curious. So what's up with Robert Duncan slash Tom now? <laughs> well. You know, I never stopped writing, and um, you know, I had to get a, a straight job. I, I eventually started my own advertising and design company, so that's how we supported our two kids. And uh, and now we actually uh, she just arrived for babysitting. We have a grandkid, a brand new grandkid. It's very sweet. What's up with me is between helping babysit for the grandkid, I've been working on a book for. I don't know, five or just years. It goes on with me, and it's a completely different thing. Not completely different, but it's it's way much more fantastical uh, than it is, you know, memoiry. And right now, it's called Fifty Nine Burst, and so it is named for a Les Paul guitar, right, but, it, right. uh, but it has nothing, not much to do with Les Paul guitars. Now, is there's a a website also where people can look up uh, Loudmouth, isn't there? There's, I have a website called Duncan Writes, like, like scribbling, like writing. And uh, DuncanWrites.com is, and I got the book, which is also an ebook and an audiobook. And, and the audiobook, which was recorded right here in my, I have a studio in my house, because I still play music. I really, if you don't want to read, or if you're not that interested in reading, then I think the audiobook kicks ass. Did you voice that? Yes, I did. I did it, did it all. I voiced it. But it, it came out really great. I, I'm really happy with it. And the book, the book is up for some. It's up for a big indie fiction award in June. I keep forgetting. I that. saw that. I saw that. So, well, that's that's kind of exciting. Well, it's a great read, and and thank you for joining us. But also, thank you for talking about the audio book, uh, Robert Duncan. The book is Loudmouth, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a lot of fun, and I, I think your questions are great. If you would like to buy this book please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 